1 Peter 2.2 tells us that when we long for the pure spiritual milk of God's Word, we grow up into our salvation. And so if you have your copy of God's Word with you this morning, and I hope you do, please turn to Numbers 24. That's found on page 168 of your pew Bible if you need to look on that copy. Uh, We're going to be looking at Numbers 24, 15 through 19 for our worship in God's Word this morning, this Christmas Eve in a message that I've titled, The Strangest Christmas Carol. Now to be fair, that means something, because I don't know about you, you, but uh, I've heard some pretty strange so-called Christmas songs in my day, like, I want a hippopotamus for Christmas, or I'm going to lasso Santa Claus, or my personal favorite, Grandma Got Ran Over by a Reindeer. Those are pretty strange But the reason why those songs are so strange is because the content is so strange. You know, the last time that I looked, obtuse hippos, fat men in red suits, and arctic caribou playing hit and run with elderly have nothing to do with Christmas. And so those songs are strange because the content of those songs are so strange. Well, this morning we're going to look at a Christmas carol that's strange, not because the content is so strange. We're going to see today the content is spot on. We're going to look at A Christmas Carol, a song about the coming of Christ that's the strangest song imaginable because the communicator of the song is so strange. The carol that we're going to study this morning comes from the last person you would ever expect to suddenly start singing about Christmas. And yet I would contend that it is one of the most stunning songs about the coming of Christ ever found in all of Scripture. A song that describes the birth of the life and the work of Jesus Christ at such a vast and grand scale of magnificence, it is nearly unparalleled in all of scriptural revelation. And yet we don't often think about this song that we're going to study this morning when it comes to Christmas because it comes from the last guy you would ever expect it to come from. And that guy is a name is a person named Balaam the son of Beor. Now, if you're unfamiliar with this person, or if you need a reminder this morning, Balaam, the son of Beor, whom we see here in Numbers 22 through 24, is a real work of art when you study his character. First, he's pagan. Balaam is not an Israelite. Numbers 22 verse 5 identifies him as one of the idolatrous Canaanites of the land. These were the people who were sacrificing their children to demons through carved idols and shish-kebobbing their enemies' heads on stakes, right? So this is the type of guy that Balaam is. He's pagan. Secondly, Balaam is predatory. In Numbers 22, one of Israel's enemies, the Moabites, come up to Balaam and ask him in hatred to curse the people of Israel as they're moving from Egypt into the Promised Land. And they they want Balaam to curse Israel simply because they're passing by close to their land. And Balaam is not troubled by this at all. The Moabites show him the money, and Balaam's sold. He's committed to carrying out the act of cursing upon the unexpected Israelites, even if that means, by the end of chapter 22, nearly beating his own donkey to death and risking his own life by going up against the angel of the Lord himself. This is the type of person that Balaam is. He's pagan. He's predatory. Third, he's pragmatic. 
in Numbers 23, moving closer to our chapter, even after God warns him three times upon risk of his own life to not curse the people of Israel, Balaam keeps on coming back to the Lord like five times and basically says, did you really mean that, Lord? Right? I mean, I'm sure you did, but can I curse them now? No? Okay, well, how about now? Okay, well, how about now? Balaam refused to take God at his word and operate by the principles that God gave him. He wanted to do what he thought was best, what would work for him. And so Balaam is pagan. He's predatory. He's pragmatic. And finally, Balaam's fourth perverted. After Balaam is prevented in these chapters from ever directly cursing Israel, we find out, nevertheless, that Balaam found a way, another way, to bring judgment upon Israel. Basically, in Numbers 31, verse 16, and then over in Revelation 2, verse 14, we find out that Balaam instructed all the pagan women of the land around Israel to entice the Israelites through prostitution and marriage to begin to worship their false idols and thus lead all of Israel into judgment. And so that's Balaam. He's pagan, predatory, pragmatic, perverted. And by the way, archaeology attests to all of this as well. In 1967, a plaster inscription was uncovered in Deir Allah, Jordan, just east of the Jordan River, right around where this biblical account takes place. The inscription was hidden behind plaster that dates to within a couple hundred years of this account, so the inscription is older still, and it begins, the book of Balaam, the son of Beor, seer of the gods, and it contains a list of curses this man wrote out, as well as several disturbing accounts of deities not only making love, but bringing curses upon other nations through sexual deviancy. Isn't that interesting? It's exactly what we find here in Scripture, which makes sense because Scripture is the Word of God, and every Word of God always proves true. He is a shield to those who take refuge in Him. And so this is Balaam. He's predatory. He's pragmatic. He's perverted pagan. He's the last person you'd ever expect to suddenly break out in a glorious song about the future birth and coming of Jesus, Israel's Messiah, and yet in the passage before us today, that is exactly what this guy Balaam does. First, in verses 15 through 16, Balaam shows us in his Christmas song the splendor of the coming Christ. That he, who was promised to come to earth as a man, would nevertheless be so much more than just a man. So we'll see the splendor of Christ in Balaam's Christmas song. Second, the beginning of verse 17, Balaam shows us the sovereignty of the coming Christ. That he would be a glorious and a luminary king who would rule. And then finally, at the end of verse 17 into verse 19, Balaam shows us the strength of the coming Christ, that he would be the one who would single-handedly bring all the promises of God into glorious fulfillment. This is what Balaam's song, the strangest Christmas carol ever, teaches us today. That the Christ who has come and is coming is no mere baby and no mere man, He is a king of infinite splendor, sovereignty, and strength. A divine king who is worthy of all of our worship today. And so, in light of that, if you would please stand with me out of reverence for the Word of God as I read our passage this morning from Numbers 24, verses 15 through 19. Balaam under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. 
sung these words even for us today. It says, And he took up his discourse and said, The oracle of Balaam, the son of Beor, the oracle of the man whose eye is opened. The oracle of him who hears the words of God and knows the knowledge of the Most High, who sees the vision of the Almighty falling down with his eyes uncovered. I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come up out of Jacob, and a scepter shall rise out of Israel. It shall crush the forehead of Moab and break down all the sons of Sheth. Edom shall be dispossessed. Seir also his enemies shall be dispossessed. Israel is doing valiantly. And one from Jacob shall exercise dominion and destroy the survivors of cities. This is the word of God, whose statutes we delight in and whose words we commit to never forget. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the opportunity we have to worship you this morning by responding to your word. Father, we thank you for the lessons that are contained in our passage before us today. Father, we live in a dark world. We live in confusing times. We enter into circumstances when often we do not know the way. And in those times of confusion and chaos, we can wonder, where are you and what has happened to your promises? We thank you for Balaam's song that reminds us that because of Jesus, we can ever trust in you as the God who fulfills all your promises. And so, Father, I pray that you would lead us by your Spirit through these words that your Spirit moved upon Balaam to speak all those years ago. Father, I pray that you would, just like you did for Balaam, I pray that you would open our eyes, our spiritual eyes this morning to behold the glory of your Son, Jesus Christ, that we might all here today be worshipers of him but in spirit and in truth. Give us grace, Father, we pray towards this end. Move upon us by your spirit, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Now, even though this strangest of Christmas carols comes from the most unexpected source imaginable, a predatory, pragmatic, perverted pagan, it actually comes, I want you to know it, one of the most important moments in the redemptive history not only of israel but really of humanity as a whole you see ever since the curse of sin and death first entered into the world through adam in the garden of eden god kept on giving mankind promises after promises after promises regarding how he was going to save and restore humanity back to himself from their curse of sin and death It all began back in Genesis chapter 3, right after the fall, where God immediately promised Adam and Eve that he would send someone into this world who would crush the head of that devilish serpent, the one who first brought into this world all the sin, death, and destruction that we see around us today. And then in Genesis chapter 9, we learn that this saving, promised person sent from God would come through the line of Shem, Noah's son, and would bring spiritual blessings to others. 
Then in Genesis 22, we learn that this saving king would come from the family of Abraham, specifically through his promised son Isaac, and that this offspring would possess the gates of his enemies and be the one in whom all the nations of the earth would be blessed. Finally, in Genesis 49, we find out that Isaac's son Jacob had 12 sons, which would become the 12 tribes of Israel. And it is revealed there that it is through the line of Judah that the saving king would come, who would rule the world with absolute power, just like a lion that's crouched low over its prey. So God has given all these wonderful promises to Israel that a powerful worldwide salvation and Savior would come through the people of Israel someday. And I'm sure that many Israelites thought at that time that they would see those divine blessings and power reflected in their own nation's experiences. That they, as the nation of the promised king, would be richly blessed with that crushing, crouching power. That they, as the nation of that promised king, would possess the gates of their enemies. That they, as the nation of that promised king, would be a blessing over all the nations of the earth. I'm sure many Israelites thought that they would experience something like that. But instead, what follows Genesis and what follows all of God's promises for salvation and a Savior was 400 years of captivity and slavery at the hands of Egypt. In other words, Israel's not in the position of a mighty lion that's crouching low over its prey. It's in the position of the prey itself, of being ruled over rather than ruling. And even after Israel's brought up by God's almighty power out of the nation of Israel under many signs and wonders through Moses and Aaron, for the most part, as Israel's traveling through the wilderness, Israel is tiptoeing around the surrounding nations and tribes, not ruling over them. And so after 400 years of hard labor and slavery, and after almost 40 years of wandering listlessly around the wilderness, it would have been very natural to wonder whether all of those promises from God regarding the salvation of humanity through Israel's promised, ruling, saving king had all been redacted. In the midst of their wandering and their wondering, had God abandoned His people? Had God abandoned His promises? And the answer that we find in our passage this morning is a resounding no. Despite the hardship and the confusion that they were experiencing, God had not abandoned His people nor His promises. And so in order to demonstrate His total ability to fulfill His saving promises, God causes the most unlikely person imaginable, a predatory, pragmatic, perverted pagan, to declare before Israel's own enemies a Stunning reaffirmation of all of God's saving promises in the coming of a promised king, whom we now know to be Jesus Christ. And this, the strangest Christmas carol, sung out by the strangest communicator, begins by reminding us this Christmas Eve of the splendor of the coming Christ. That's in verses 15 through 16. And I want you all to picture this moment In your mind's eye, Balaam is standing on top of a mountain called Mount Beor, or Peor, and stretched out before him is the wilderness, filled to the brim with the tents of the Israelites. And Balak, the king of the Moabites, Israel's enemies, are standing next to Balaam, and he is desperately begging him to curse Israel, to somehow try to steal from Israel God's saving blessings. 
Three times Balaam tries, and three times Balaam fails, and ends up blessing Israel rather than cursing them. And Balak, at this point, understandably, is almost out of his mind in anger and striking his fists together. He basically tells Balaam in verse 11 of Numbers 24, you better run, squirrel, because if I catch you, I'm going to kill you. And Balaam, moved by the Spirit, replies in verse 14, hold on, I'm not finished yet. Let me tell you what this people are going to do to your people in the latter days. That brings us to our passage, verse 15. And he, that is Balaam, took up his discourse and said, the oracle of Balaam, son of Beor, the oracle or the divine revelation of the man whose eye is opened, the oracle of him who hears the words of God, And again, this is not Balaam patting himself on the back here. Balaam is here because he is absolutely forced into this position by the omnipotent power of God. Just like God can make the mouth of a donkey speak words of reason if he wants to, which is exactly what happens back in the end of chapter 22, God can make the the mouth of a pagan speak words of revelation if he wants him to as well. By the sovereign, infinite, power of God, Balaam's spiritual eyes and ears are opened to behold a glorious vision. And what does this vision, what does this prophetic poem, this strangest of Christmas carols, reveal to Balaam? It reveals to him, as he says here, the knowledge, the knowledge of the Most High and the vision of the Almighty falling down with his eyes uncovered. Notice, this is the one whom Balaam predicts. This is the one that Balaam sees coming in this vision. It's not the arrival of some mere man, right? Of just some great king. Balaam says this is the coming of the Most High, the Almighty Himself coming down to earth. Just as the angel declared to Mary in Luke one thirty-two, He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. This is the wonder of Christmas that we celebrate today. Not the birth of a baby. It is the wonder of this, that the infinite became an infant. And how great is the splendor of this Almighty God that Balaam sees coming? Balaam says that when he sees it, it causes him to fall down, to prostrate himself in wonder and in awe. When this promised Christ comes, His glory will cause others to fall down and worship Him. Now, brothers and sisters, when, when Christ first came to this earth all those years ago, guess what people did when they beheld His splendor and glory? They fell down and worshipped Him. Let me remind you, in Matthew's Gospel, when the wise men came to the house and they saw Jesus as a child with Mary his mother, Matthew 2.11 tells us that they fell down and worshipped Him and offered Him gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Why? It's because they saw His splendor and saw that He was no mere child. He was the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. And so they fell down and they worshipped Him. Years later in Luke's Gospel, we find out that Jesus is no longer a child. He's grown up. He's a man. And as, he's, and as He climbs into a boat owned by a guy named Peter, He begins teaching the crowds around Him. And Peter begins hearing Jesus' words. And then Peter is told by Jesus to start fishing on the other side of the boat after a night of absolute failure. And for some reason, Peter starts obeying this man, Jesus, immediately. And before he even realizes it, the whole net is bursting at the seams with fish. And Luke 5, verse 8 tells us that Peter 
fell down at Jesus' knees and cried out, Depart from me, O Lord, for I am a sinful man. Why did he do that? He did that because he saw Jesus' splendor, that he was no mere teacher. He was the Most High and the Holy God himself. A little while later, Jesus comes across ten lepers, and after he heals them as they're on their way back to the temple, one man, when he sees that his decaying skin is suddenly healed, he turns back praising God, and Luke 17, 16 says, he fell down at Jesus' feet on his face, giving him thanks. Why did he do that? It's because he saw Jesus' splendor, that he was no mere man. He was the Almighty God himself. And then finally, in John's Gospel, as the mob moved in the Garden of Gethsemane to arrest Jesus, Jesus speaks the divine name of God, I am. And John 18, verse 6 tells us that the entire mob moving to arrest him shrank back and fell to the ground before him. You say, well, why? It's because Jesus was no mere victim. He was the sovereign God accomplishing that evening exactly what his hand and his plan had predestined to take place. Over and over and over again in Christ's first coming, we find people doing exactly what Balaam does here, falling down before his splendor in worship and in awe. But you need to know that Balaam saw so much more than this. Because this strangest of Christmas carols is not only about Christ's first coming, it's about Christ's second coming also. Which means that Balaam saw the coming of the splendor of Christ not just in the glory with which he was seen in, but in the glory in which Christ is and will be seen in one day. Mark 13.26 reminds us that everyone will see the Son of Man coming in clouds of great glory and power. And on that day, Philippians 2, 9 through 11 tells us that at the name of Jesus, every single knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. There is a day coming when every single knee will come and fall before the splendor of the coming Christ. My question to you this morning is, have you done that yet? Or do you walk as if you are king of your own life? Christmas reminds us, oh no, you are not king. Christ is. And He calls on your allegiance today to come under His saving sovereignty and be saved. We must bow before the King of glory, Jesus Christ. For so great is His glory, wonder, and worth. This is the splendor of the coming Christ, His mere person, calls us to submit to Him in faith. So this is the splendor of the coming Christ. Second, Balaam sings for us the sovereignty of the coming Christ. This is the the beginning of verse 17. The beginning of verse 17, Balaam says, I see Him, but not now. I behold Him, but not near. And that was the truth, by the way. Jesus wasn't born until nearly nearly one and a half thousand years later after Balaam spoke these words. And indeed, the climax of this Christmas carol, which we're about to look at in a second, hasn't even happened yet. This truly is, as verse 14 of the uh, says, a prophecy of what will happen in the latter days. 
meaning it stretches all the way from Christ's first coming to Christ's second coming still in the future. That's why I say that this is simply a staggeringly vast passage of Scripture regarding the coming of the promised Christ. And notice how the coming of the promised king is pictured here. Balaam tells us uh, how he sees and is made aware of the coming of this king at the end of verse 17. Something catches his attention when he declares this, a star, a star shall come up out of Jacob and a scepter shall rise from Israel. Now what's interesting is back in verse 8, God said that this promised king would be brought out of Egypt. Here he says he would come out of Jacob. So how does that work? Is he out of Jacob or is he out of Egypt? Well, we know from the Gospels the answer is yes. Jesus Christ was born in Bethlehem of Judea, right? And yet, because of Herod's persecution, he fled to Egypt. Balaam prophesies this almost 2,000 years before Jesus comes. Notice, though, how Balaam pictures this. The rising star of this ruling, or the rising up of this ruling king from Israel would be associated with a star that's coming up out of Jacob. This is why the wise men, by the way, in Matthew 2, verses 1 through 2, traveled all the way to Israel when they saw an unusual star appear in the direction of Israel. This is why the first question that they ask Herod when they go to Jerusalem is, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east and have come to what? worship him because they knew the splendor of the one born was the almighty the most high they asked that question of herod because of this verse right here those wise men knew likely from daniel's influence in teaching this christmas carol that when a star came up out of jacob a king would rise up out of israel and by the way this is confirmed even in in archaeology, if you're interested, there's this place called Nemrut Dag, which is, the, which is an observatory of the ancient Magi in eastern Turkey, where three appointed magician priests, uh, each from the ancient orders of the Persian, Babylonian, and Macedonian cultures, would keep watch day and night under the order of the Roman Empire. This observatory was created before the birth of Christ so that these Magi could maintain their tradition of monitoring for a future event. Isn't that interesting? Well, what's interesting is that at this location, there is an observation that is carved into the constellation Leo that has an extremely rare conjunction of planets that only occurs in Leo every 20,000 years, as well as carved into this sigil, 19 stars. Scholars have run those planet and star charts through astrological programs, and that unique alignment only lands on one single solitary date, August 27th, 2 BC. And what's more, all of those 19 stars in the carvings can be identified by scientists except one located right in the heart of the Lion King Leo, just inside the crescent moon. In other words, on August 27th, 2 BC, an unknown star appeared during the rarest conjunction of planets and stars ever to occur, and it was seen in the east by magi, and they carved it into stone. We know this from archaeology, and it was so amazing they carved it into stone as a permanent record of what happened. Is it any wonder then that we then turn to Scripture and that the Bible tells us of magi that come from the east saying they star, a star arise in the east and they've come to worship the king. 
It's because of this verse right here. A star would come up out of Jacob, a scepter out of Jacob's descendants. This brings us back to Jacob's promise, by the way, of his son Judah in Genesis 49, verse 10, where Jacob says there, A scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until he to whom tribute belong comes. To him shall be the obedience of all the peoples. Well, Balaam builds on this prophecy here. And he says that when this ruler comes, he will be a luminary king. He will be shining like a star upon those who dwell in darkness. Which is exactly what Jesus said of himself when he walked here on earth. As Jesus said in John 12, 46, I have come into this world as light, so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. That is exactly what is predicted later in Isaiah 6 verse, or 60, verses 1-3. through 3. Where the prophet Isaiah says that on the day when the glory of God will be seen among his people, it says in Isaiah, nations will come to your light and kings to the brightness of your rising, bringing gold and frankincense and good news, the praise of the Lord. Isaiah was written 700 years before the birth of Christ. The wise men at Christ's birth gives us a taste of that moment when they came to worship Christ. But there is a day coming, ladies and gentlemen, when as Psalms 138 verses 4 through 5 says, All the kings of the earth will give thanks to you, O Lord, and shall prostrate themselves before your servant, the Redeemer of Israel, whom you have chosen. Isaiah 49, 7. They'll do all of this from the rising of the sun to its setting. Why? Because this child that's been born This son that's been given is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords. And Isaiah 9 verse 6 says that the governing of the nations shall be put on his shoulders. Just as was declared at Jesus' birth, the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there shall be no end. And when Jesus comes to establish this kingdom over all, Revelation 19, verse 16 tells us that on his robe and on his thigh is a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. This is the sovereignty of the coming Christ. More than just three kings, more than just a few kings, one day all kings will bow before the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. As Revelation 21, verse 24 predicts of that final state, by His light shall all the nations walk, and all the kings of the earth will bring their glory to Him. So we've seen the splendor of the coming Christ. We've seen the sovereignty of the coming Christ. No mere victim. Christ the King. And now, finally, Balaam finishes by exalting in the strength of the coming Christ. That's at the end of verse 17, into verse 19. Balaam says, it, that is that coming star, right? That rising scepter, that promised king. This promised Messiah shall crush, he says, the forehead of Moab and break down the sons of Sheth. Edom shall be dispossessed. Seir also, his enemies, shall be dispossessed. Israel's doing valiantly. And one from Jacob shall exercise dominion and destroy the survivors of cities. In these three verses, I want you to see that Jesus is associated with three distinct verbs, all of which highlight how Jesus is the fulfillment of all God's saving promises. The saving promises that Israel, at this very moment, is struggling to believe in. At this time of wandering and wondering because of their circumstances and trials, God raises up Jesus 
as the supreme example of Him fulfilling all of His promises. In verse 17, Jesus is described first as the crusher. It says that He will crush the forehead of Moab, the offspring of the serpent, and break down all the sons of Sheth. Jesus is the crusher. He's the fulfillment of Genesis 3.15, the fulfillment of God's promises to Adam. He's the crusher. Verse 18, Jesus is described as the possessor. It says, Edom shall be dispossessed. Seir also and his enemies shall be dispossessed. This recalls Genesis 22.17 and Genesis 24.60, where, where Isaac would have a singular offspring who would possess the gates of his enemies. In other words, Jesus doesn't come after all the world is converted where everybody's already his friends. He comes into a largely unconverted world and he sets up his kingdom and he's going to possess the gates of his enemies and be the possessor, the fulfillment of God's promises to Isaac. And then in verse 19, Jesus is described as the dominator. It says, and one from Jacob shall exercise what? Dominion and destroy the survivors of cities. This recalls God's blessing that he gave to all humanity back in Genesis 1.28. If you remember when he created man in his own image, he said, I want you to have what? Dominion over the fish and the birds and every living thing. But it also recalls for us how Adam mucked all that up, up, doesn't it? And how now we, instead of having dominion, we sweat, we bleed, we die sometimes at the hands of the very things that we were originally to have dominion over. Well, now God promises us through Jesus that there is going to be someone who rolls back the curse, who shall exercise that dominion. As the perfect man, Jesus is going to reverse the curse and restore humanity to its rightful role and its original bliss. And frankly, we sing of this every Christmas and we don't even think about it. Have you ever thought of the words... Have Christ's mission to no more let sin nor sorrows grow nor thorns infest the ground. He comes to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found. Far as the curse is found. He will exercise dominion and be the dominator, the fulfillment of God's original promises to all humanity. This is Jesus, and you need to know it. He's not some cute little baby you can contain within a manger. He's the almighty God and the fulfillment of all God's promises which you cannot confine to time or space. This is Jesus, the ultimate demonstration of God's power to fulfill His promises to His people even in the midst of chaos and confusion. He is the fulfillment of God's promises to Adam, to Abraham and Isaac, and to all humanity itself. All the promises of God find their yes and amen in Christ. Jesus is the power of God. This is the strength of the coming Christ. Balaam reminds us here that when Jesus comes the second time, He will be the power of God unto judgment. But right here, right now, and even through this narrative that's before us, we are reminded that Jesus has come this first time to be the power of God to salvation. For think about it. Think about it for a moment. Balaam was hired by the Moabites in this passage in order to undermine God's promises and curse God's people. The Moabites, represented by this predatory, pragmatic, perverted pagan of Balaam, are clearly acting as God's enemies here, are they not? 
They're talked about here in verse 17 as those whose foreheads God is going to crush because they are predatory, pragmatic, and perverted pagans walking at enmity with God. They are deserving of God's wrath. And yet, wonder of wonders, when we come to Jesus' genealogy in Matthew 1, 1 1-5, whom should we find there but a Moabite named Ruth? Someone who was once a predatory, pragmatic, and perverted pagan, an enemy deserving of God's judgment, was brought into Jesus' own lineage by God's almighty saving power. This teaches us something. Is that through Jesus Christ, God is able to save anyone. Anyone. And this is the good news that we rejoice in today because if God can save anyone, then God can save me. And that same saving power of God in Christ is demonstrated for us all how in the person of Balaam himself. I want you to think for a moment this morning. If God by his omnipotent power, can make a predatory, pragmatic, perverted pagan like Balaam sing the promises and the praises of Jesus, then God can do the same for you as well and for every single person you've ever met. As Romans 5 verse 8 says, God has showed his love towards us in this, in that while we were yet, what? Sinners. What happened? Christ died for us. And this is why Christ came this first time. As Jesus told Nicodemus on that roof in John 3, verse 17, He says, God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through Him, so that those who walk as His enemies might be made sons and daughters of the Most High. This is why Christ has been revealed. To show us that God is able to save anyone, even you, if you ask Him to this morning. All it takes is to see a vision of Jesus as He really is and as we've seen here this morning. A Christ of divine and saving splendor, sovereignty and strength. To know that you are a sinner and to know that Jesus Christ is the one who has the power to save you. If you call on Him in faith this morning to save you from your sins, He will save you, surely. And so, in light of this Balaam song, we should resound this morning with the call of what a Jesus, what a Savior, and what a Lord from the strangest of Christmas carols ever. Three encouragements I want to leave you with this morning, this Christmas Eve. First, encouragement from Numbers 24, verses 15 through 19. First, our God sees. Our God sees. He sees what we don't see ourselves. And we see that with Balaam and the nation of Israel in this passage. When we, like Israel feel like we're just wandering around blindly in trials and hardships and that there's no purpose, there's no plan, there's no promises, there's no presence to what God is doing. And we're wondering what God is doing and what has become of His promises. We need to remember that God sees what we do not see. And that He has a plan to faithfully carry it out. A plan for His glory and the good of His people. Our God sees when we do not see ourselves. We can trust Him. 
in those confusing times. Second, our God is able. If our God can make a donkey speak, if our God can make a man like Balaam worship, then our God can accomplish His purposes, His plans, and His promises in our day without a problem in the world. No one can override His purposes. Herod tried with the deception of the wise men and the slaughter of the innocent, and he failed. The Roman and Jewish authorities tried with Christ's crucifixion and His burial, and they failed. And Satan still tries today, and he's failing too. Our God is able, and we can trust Him. And then finally, our God sees, our God is able, our God saves. I can't imagine a better illustration of God's almighty power to save than Balaam transforming, if even for an instant, a predatory, pragmatic, and perverted pagan into an astonishing worshiper of Jesus Christ. Listen, what God did superficially to Balaam for a moment, God can do in reality to anybody for eternity. He can transform his enemies into friends, and he can make them into sons and daughters of God. Just as John eleven thirteen states, he came to his own, But his own did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who are born not of blood, nor by the will of flesh, nor by the will of man, but of God, by his saving power. Our God saves And this is what we rejoice in this morning. This is the strangest of Christmas quarrels and what it teaches us. Our God sees. Our God is able. And our God saves. Let us bring that mindset of Christ into Christmas this year. Because this is our God. And not only has God, Jesus come, but Jesus is coming again soon in splendor, sovereignty, and strength. Because He sees, He's able, and He saves. So come. Just as the wise men And just like every knee will one day, let us worship this coming Christ. Let us trust this coming Christ. And let us sing His praises as Balaam did today. For He is full of splendor, sovereignty, and strength. This is Numbers 24, verses 15-19, through which I now commit to your further study and your faithful obedience until Israel's scepter and Jacob's star comes again in glory for his own. To that end, let's pray. Father, I thank you for the opportunity we have had this morning on this Christmas Eve to gather together as brothers and sisters in Christ, as those who have been adopted into your family, to come and be reminded of the significance of the day that we have set apart tomorrow. Father, we thank you for what it represents that Jesus Christ has come because you are a God who sees and who has strength to save. And so, Father, I pray that you would help us to come into Christmas tomorrow with this same mindset. Help us, Father, to remember that that you see, that you are able, and that you are saving. And, Father, I pray that we would give Jesus Christ the sacrifice of praise that is worthy of His great name. May we join with all those who have come before us, who have bowed before Him in worship, 
And may we sing His praises this week, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.